Hello, I'm Anthony Johnston, and you're listening to Writing and Breathing, a show where I chat with fellow authors of all kinds about why, how, and what we write. My guest today is the novelist Zoe Sharp. Zoe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So first of all, for listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, just briefly tell us who you are and what you do. I'm a crime thriller author. Uh, I've been published oh, since, well, in fiction since about 2001. Um, and before that, I started off as a non-fiction photojournalist, uh, specialising mainly in the motoring industry, which was a bit of an interesting one. Uh, and so I, I really started being published in non-fiction back in 88. This is dating me horribly here. <laughs> uh, but I actually wrote my first novel when I was 15, which is somewhat before 1988, I hate to say. Um, so yes, I've been writing and taking photographs and playing with words for longer than I haven't, it feels like. <laughs> um, I write, uh, the main series I write is the, the Charlie Fox series, which, uh, takes a character from her beginnings teaching self-defense, uh, into the world of close protection. Uh, and uh, that's that's now up to 13 novels and various short stories. Uh, and I've recently started doing a series set in the lakes, which is a partnership between um, a crime scene investigator and a, a fairly junior detective. Um, I've done some standalones. I've done quite a few short stories. Um, and I've also just signed... Uh, a contract with Bookature to do a new series, uh, which will the first of which will come out next year. So apart from that, I'm just loafing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just a small workload, nothing much. Yes, yeah, sleep is very overrated. <laughs> no, I, I know I'm in full agreement with you there. Um, so, I mean, let's just rewind a little to uh, you said you wrote your first novel when you were 15. Mm. Um, that's that's quite precocious. Uh, yes, possibly. Um, I was a voracious reader as a child and, um, eventually it almost seemed natural just to start writing my own. Um, I mean, that, that novel I wrote by hand, um, and my father, bless him, typed it up for me on a, on an electric typewriter. Again, I'm dating myself horribly. Uh, it went out to all the major publishers, which then involved, you know, actually packet printing out. Well, there was no printout. It was already printed um, and packaging up the full manuscript and sending it with a return uh, postage. Um, and it received what's known in the trade as rave rejections. Uh, they all said, we think this is marvellous, but we don't actually want to publish it. Uh, so that still sits in a box in the loft. Um, where my father keeps threatening to get it out and put it on eBay, um, and and I just keep threatening him. <laughs> and uh, yes, I put that aside and and uh, thought, well, clearly I'm not cut out for writing fiction because it's it's terribly difficult to get into. So I, when I did start writing, um, you know, sort of uh, professionally, as it were, it was nonfiction, and I I sideways into it by the by the by the back door, being sneaky. Wow. So not only did you write your first novel at 15, but you, you submitted it. I mean, okay, sure, it wasn't published, but just having the, the guts to go through with submitting it to publishers is, at such a young age is unusual. Yes, you don't realise when you first start being a writer how much criticism you're going to have to take. Uh, somebody said, and I can't remember who I'm afraid, that writers take more criticism in a year than most people do in a lifetime. And I think that's probably more true now because anybody can dash off a review on Goodreads or on one of the, the retailer websites uh, or on social media or whatever. And if they haven't thought much of your book, then then you get to know about it. I mean, um, fortunately, they also very nicely tell you when they've enjoyed the book as well, which I try only to read the good reviews because I take the bad ones to heart. I, I think we all do, yeah. But that is the double-edged sword of it is, yes. everyone being able to leave reviews now, isn't it? Is that, yes, as you say, when when people love a book, they will tell you. But when they don't love a book, they will tell you. Uh, yes, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, if if something in the story hasn't worked, then I'd always rather know. And if I've made mistakes, I want to know. In fact, I invite people in the the back of of my uh, books. You know, if you find any errors, then please tell me about them, uh, because it, at least that's one of the beauties of being a, a hybrid author and having control over the. The manuscripts is that I can actually make updates and changes. Ah, right. Okay. Well, I mean, we'll come to that shortly. Yes, but I, I hadn't thought about that as an advantage. Yeah, of course, because you're if you're self publishing and it's mostly you know mostly Kindle uh, and eBooks, then of course, yeah, you do have the ability to go in and sort of edit after the fact, which you can't do with traditional publication. No, no. So errors tend to sort of. Um, outlive you almost <laughs> yeah, oh yes believe me i know <laughs> and so do typos yeah um so uh okay so so you didn't break into uh fiction as a child prodigy you went into the photojournalism side instead i assume was motoring already an interest for you it was yes my first car was a was a very elderly triumph spitfire which i i um took apart and put back together and resprayed and did various things to and that got me into sort of the classic car world and uh the classic car magazines and at the time in the late 80s all the investors were suddenly buying you know, very expensive classic cars, the market went completely mad. And there were a lot of magazines out there, which all needed to be filled with articles every month. Um, and it was, uh, it was, it was a great time to get into it. I started as a freelance, just by submitting things. And after more or less the, the first couple of articles, I then stopped doing stuff on spec, I would only do commissioned work. And that lasted for the best part of 25 years. Wow. That's, I mean, I think anybody, I, I got into, I, I used to work in magazines many years ago as an art director rather than a writer, although I did do a little bit of article writing as well. But I think anybody who remembers that era would acknowledge that 25 years, uh, a 25 year long career in magazine work, especially, which is really volatile and really, you know, magazines close down and reopen and what have you every month. That's quite impressive to keep holding down that job for that long. Well, it was, although I said I specialised in in motoring, at the time I started, there were something like 120 different motoring magazines on the market that either came out, some, some were weekly, most were monthly, some were quarterly, but they all needed to be filled. Um, so yeah, they were, they were a, a great market for you know classic restorations and people who'd built their own rally cars and all sorts of things so it was a it was a fascinating um a fascinating business to get into and i was interested in cars anyway um and also you met some amazing people i i I met arms dealers and mercenaries and cage fighters and all sorts of people who were brilliant (laughs) for my later career uh writing about crime Wow. I mean, just to follow on from that, what by contrast, how many magazines are there in that field these days? Oh, it's shrunk uh, enormously. And particularly when, you know, with the, with the real rise of the internet, suddenly all the advertising went online. Um, and it was the advertising that paid for the content. You know, the cover price of a magazine only pays for the distribution, really, but the advertising pays for the content. So suddenly, and also with um, digital photography, I mean, when I first started out, I was still shooting black and white Ilford film. Oh, wow. uh, And suddenly digital photography meant you could go out and do a, you know, a shoot over a weekend with almost no uh, incidental costs. Whereas I think the last year I shot analog if you like a shot film my film and processing bills were about 15 grand wow so you couldn't afford to do that if you didn't know you were going to get paid for it whereas you know suddenly there were a huge number of people that would go out and take a few pictures as the art editors would would uh, airily say and they had somebody who was good with photoshop who could you know knock them into shape afterwards um, whereas, you know, as I say, with, with analog stuff, when I started, what you saw was what you got. So you had to be, had to have a little bit more skill involved. Yeah. Well, yeah. The barrier to entry was much, much higher. Mm. So, I mean, one thing where nice segue, the barrier to entry is not very high is writing fiction. So 
how, when did you d- decide to get back into that world? When did you decide to sort of have another go at it? Well, when I was younger, I loved reading thrillers as much as mysteries. I mean, I remember, it's probably sacrilege to say it, when I first read Agatha Christie, I think I possibly the first one I read was uh, Murder on the Orient Express. And the problem with that was it was so convoluted and there were so many clues that appeared to be red herrings because I'm sure I'm not shocking anybody by saying or giving away the ending by saying everybody <laughs> could have done it and actually they did. Everybody did, yes. There are no red herrings. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, there is no way I can write anything quite this convoluted. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I loved reading the fast-paced thrillers um, things like Alistair MacLean and Frederick Forsyth and, and Jack Higgins, people like that. And I really thought that, you know, I would I would love to write something more along those lines. And one thing I noticed, particularly with those books, was how few, um, I suppose, uh, inspirational female characters there were. The the female characters tended to be there to, you know, tend to the wounded and uh, as love interest for the hero. And they would they would be kidnapped or um, break their ankles while trying to run away. You know, they, they were just, oh, you wanted to shake them. And I wanted to read about, you know, female characters who, who were the ones doing the rescuing rather than the ones being rescued. And eventually I decided I was going to have to write my own. And the the thing that was the sort of the catalyst for it, I suppose, was I was sent to do uh, an interview with a, a guy who lived somewhere in, in South Wales. And the magazine um, set it up and I rang the chap and he was supposed to have this interesting collection of classic cars. And when I got there, two things happened. One, he was very surprised that I was not on my own. Um, because when you're doing, particularly when you're doing car photography, you tend to need somebody to drive the car you're in leaning out of with a camera. It's very difficult to do that on your own. Ah, yes. Um, And also the collection of cars didn't actually exist. So at the time I thought, oh, this is a wasted journey. And I was a bit annoyed about it. But afterwards I started to think, well, what was, clearly he thought I was going to turn up on my own. What was he planning to do then? And it was about the time that um, the British estate agent, Susie Lamplew, went to show somebody around a, a vacant house and was never, I don't think they've found her even even now, but that was uh, mid-late 80s. And that was very much in my mind. So I went back to the character I'd originally started to develop as a, as a, a sort of response to those early thrillers. And I dusted off my pages and thought, yes, I really ought to write this now. And that became uh, Charlie Fox. Oh, wow. So what made you decide, just to get into the character for a moment, what made you decide to make Charlie a a personal protection agent rather than, say, you know, a policeman, sorry, police officer, I should say, or a, you know, amateur detective or something? Well, I've always been a little bit wary with amateur detectives about how, about the longevity of them. You know, I mean, it's it's become known as, I think, Cabot Cove syndrome, which is the <laughs> Jessica Fletcher murder she wrote. You know, nobody would ever invite that woman for dinner because you or know indeed go and live in Cabot Cove. There's going, yes. yes, there's going to be one fewer for dessert than there was at the start of the meal. And um, I mean, how many bodies can you realistically keep tripping over? Um, so I knew I wanted to have her have some professional capacity of of involvement with crime. But to be quite honest, I was too um, lacking in self-confidence in some ways, I suppose, to walk into my nearest police station and say, I want to talk to you about crime procedure. And because I mean, now you can find any number of people on the Internet who are more than willing to chat to you. Or, you know, there's there's so many books out there for um, uh, police procedure for crime writers um, and all sorts of of things like that. I mean, I have any number of them on my shelves even. Um, but then it was it was a lot harder. Well, and there are even former police officers running consulting agencies who oh, yes. will hire themselves out to authors for that sort of purpose. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, and even things like I've I've been reading the uh, Brian Price did an excellent book about the science for crime writers, and he goes into the common mistakes you know that appear on on TV in crime shows, and and the procedure of how it would actually happen. So there is a huge amount of information out there now. I think I've got Brian's book on my to read pile. Actually, yeah, I know the one you mean. Um, so okay, so that I mean that's understandable. Um, but again, you know, personal protection, it's not, I mean, the only other specifically, you know, we might call it bodyguard detective or not detective, but bodyguard crime fiction author that I know of is Greg Rucker, who did the Atticus Kodiak series and has been on this show, I should mention. Yes. Um, yes, I know Greg. Right. Well, it's not a, it's not a wide genre as it were, or a wide field, I should say. So again, what made you focus on that particularly rather than you know, any other number of uh, directions you could have gone in? Well, I gave the character a, a military background. Charlie's come out of the army. Um, and this, this, these events happened, I suppose, you know, a few years before the first book that I wrote about her. And she comes out of the army more or less in disgrace. And I, I, at the time, and it's, it keeps popping its head up every now and again, the deep cuts um army base in the UK where they had a lot of deaths of soldiers in very suspicious circumstances that they discovered was due to initiation or hazing or yes and they were you know were they suicides or weren't they and it it, it became a, a a big scandal at the time but we are very bad in the UK at what we how we prepare our ex forces personnel for life in civvy street so and particularly if they've been, you know, more or less dishonorably discharged um, and there are very few uh, employment openings available to them. And most of the people, particularly, I mean, I gave Charlie, she was she was in training for special forces. Um, I mean, I didn't I didn't take that too far into SAS territory because uh, at the time, certainly there were no women being accepted for. Um, for that kind of uh, work. But they were being used very extensively in undercover operations, particularly for army intelligence in Northern Ireland. And I wanted to have her, you know, training for that kind of thing. But um, when she gets thrown out, I mean, what do you do then? So they tend to either go into close protection or they become mercenaries or private military contractors, as the as, as the, we call them uh, now, yes, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is the sanitised way of putting it. But um, so I wanted to take her into that field, but I didn't want to drop her down immediately. So the the first uh, couple of books, she is teaching self defence, and she kind of gets into. I suppose it's a lot closer to her being an amateur sleuth than um after about book three which is why i'm i'm just doing box sets at the moment so the first three books are her early life and after that she she gets into bodyguard mode and uh and almost you see her grow through the progression of the books right okay so you wrote this book uh not knowing presumably that it would be a series uh how did you then go about did you find an agent before submitting or did you just go straight to publishers no i um i i picked up my copy of the writers and artists yearbook which at the time was the only way of finding an agent or a, or a publisher uh and i looked through agents brackets crime and more or less started at the beginning um which was not the best way to do it and it's not how i would uh, advise people to do it now. Um, I mean, now I would say you can usually find on an author's website who their agent is because they'll have contact details. Um, and I, I think a particularly good way of of looking at it is going through a bookstore and looking at the acknowledgement sections of authors' work. Yes. Because if their agent is, you know, really um good and they have a good relationship with them they will thank them in the acknowledgement section <laughs> and it's almost a um uh, if not why not exactly yes <laughs> you, you fail to thank your agent at your peril i think yes 
so um you know that's what i would advise now if people were looking for an agent that they go through authors books that they think are of of a similar um genre or tone or style to their own and look for who their agent is but you didn't so how many did you go through before you found your agent Actually, not many. Uh, I think at the time, the second agent who saw the who requested the the full typescript uh, offered to represent me. Oh wow! And this was an agent who wasn't London based, which again, perhaps with hindsight, was was an error. And uh, that's how I found my first agent. And uh, I suppose it took oh probably about. I'm not sure how long, looking back now, it took to find a publisher, but um, I was eventually, the series was picked up by Piatka's Books, who are now part of Little Brown. And uh, how many books did you do with them in that series, through Piatka's specifically? Uh, I did the first five in that oh. series. That's a that's a decent number. Uh, <laughs> yes, and then I, uh, then I moved to another publisher. Um, and... Uh, carried on with the series, um, but I've also um, started doing standalones. I was doing quite a few short stories as well at the time, um, and one of which has been made into a, uh, a short film for one of the, the festival circuits, which was rather nice. But it did teach me that um, what you think you've written is often not what people read. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> well, it was. It's it's an interesting because that that particular story, which was called "Tell Me," and and it featured the crime scene investigator that eventually became the one of the lead characters in my Lake series, uh, a CSI called Grace McCall. Um, and she is having a conversation with a girl who's who's the victim of an assault, and. That story was picked up and used by, I think, a Danish publisher for school textbooks. And they ask you comprehension questions at the end of the story about the themes and about. And I do still get occasionally um, emails from Danish students asking me, you know, questions about how to interpret the the underlying meanings of this story. And they are reading far more into it than possibly I wrote at the beginning but it's fascinating to see what people take away from um things that you've written mm. well i mean and better that than the other way around yes yes you know you'd always rather that people get more involved and read more into it i think than uh than you put all the effort into it and then people just sort of skim over it yes indeed okay so, so where i was driving at i didn't realize that you'd moved to another publisher after piatkas so what, what i was driving at was when did you make the decision to, as you put it earlier, to become a hybrid author and to start self-publishing? Well, um, when Piatkus was bought out by Little Brown, they um, they did quite a lot of heavy pruning, shall we say, of their list. And um, my first five books fell by the wayside. They went out of print. Uh, and about this time, I was doing quite a few events in the States. I would go over to the BoucherCon uh, World Mystery Convention and Left Coast Crime and various other things. You know, back in the days when you were allowed to travel. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, you remember then. Um, so I remember sitting in an airport. I mean, digital books had just started to take off. This was about 2011. And uh, they took off much faster in in the States than they did, I think, over here. But I remember sitting in a major hub airport and waiting for a flight and looking around at everybody who was sitting in the waiting area, and they were all reading on digital devices. They were all reading on Kindles or Nooks or, you know, whatever. But I thought, wow, this is, you know, I've I've got to do something about this. So having already got the the rights to the 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 backlist books because they'd been reverted um i put together uh five short stories featuring charlie fox uh one of which was was uh, written specially for this collection 
and I produced a little ebook of short stories just to kind of test the water. And then I brought out those those five books, um, you know, in ebook format. Right. Um, and was amazed by the response to them. So to be clear, uh, were you at this point, had you become a full-time writer or were you still sort of going back and forth between the writing and the photojournalism? Well, I I sideways into just doing photography. I mean, I originally started out as a as a journalist, um, although I don't know. Pe- people have a very funny impression of what a journalist does. You know, knocks on your door when you've had a tragedy and sticks a microphone in your face <laughs> and says, "How do you feel?" Um, so I just used to say, "I'm a motoring writer rather than a, a, a journalist." Right. Right. Um, but my editors very soon started to say, well, can't you just send us some photographs to go with these words? And I realised how much easier it would be to sell a words and pictures package. So I, I um, at the time, borrowed a camera and taught myself photography. Uh, and, uh, you know, after a while, it got to the point where I was really just doing the photography side. and. Um, joining up with somebody else to do the the non-fiction words and we would sell the stuff together as a package and I was just writing the fiction oh I see so it wasn't you necessarily doing photographs for somebody else's article it was just that you teamed up with somebody to put the whole thing together yourselves I see so you started out in journalism moved into photography and then actually the photography became the main thing Yes. So it was a gradual sort of, you know, sideways motion. Yeah. But you, as you say, you were still writing fiction as effectively on the side, as it were, during that time. Yes. And I, and I finally retired from uh, the photography side in 2015. I mean, I'd kept it going partly because it was it was entertaining. Um, and as I said, you made some amazing contacts and met some wonderfully interesting people. Uh, so, but it wasn't when I, I moved house, I, I, uh, split up with my husband, we got divorced, um, and I needed to put a lot of stuff into store at the time. And that included in the end, all my cameras and tripods and studio lights and all that sort of thing. And I said, right, I have to make a decision now. It's time, time to retire from the day job. Finally. So, I mean, 2015, by that time you had been a published author for many years. Uh, yes, yes. By by that time, I was uh, started to look long in the tooth. <laughs> um, but that's really interesting that you kept it going. I mean, obviously, as you say, there's the contacts, and you know, naturally, it earned you a little bit of money. But I have to figure that that probably wasn't the whole reason. There's also an element of you know, it's clearly something you enjoyed doing, and it's not writing. So it, it presumably also gave you a little bit of a a mental uh, respite, if you like, from the you know the sitting down and typing all day. Yes, and it's it's fascinating. I remember uh, talking to Stephen Booth years ago, and he said when he was still working because he was a, a newspaper man originally. When he was still working, uh, had a day job. It took him six months to write a book. He said when he gave up and went full time, it took him a year. <laughs> because somehow having less time to write makes you concentrate harder in those little, you know, the little spaces you have got. It focuses the mind. Yes. Well, also, I think you need to go off, you need to sometimes let a storyline or or a scene ferment in the back of your head and go off and, and do something completely different. And it sits there and you problem solve. It's the left half, right half brain thing. So now I do I do practical stuff. I'm um, doing sort of restoration on the, the, the place I'm living in in Derbyshire. So, you know, I'll go and, and redo a kitchen or I'm, I'm in the midst at the moment of doing replacing lime plaster, which is, you know, putting windows in and, and all that kind of thing, which is very different and it's a it's a complete break from writing so you know my my creative brain is freewheeling in the background somewhere thinking about things while i'm doing something practical yeah i think that that thinking time is so important isn't it as you say to let things germinate and let 
problems tick over in your mind, it's, uh, you know, you need to step away so that your subconscious can take over sometimes. So let's get a little into the, the nuts and bolts of the, the self-publishing. Do you hire an editor? Uh, I work with uh, an editor. Um, I was working with a, a cover designer as well, um, but who was very, very talented, uh, Jane Hudson from New Design. Um, she very sadly went down with cancer last year. And while she was undergoing treatment, um, which she has hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, she's come through successfully, uh, I was needing to revamp some of the books. So I've been teaching myself a lot more Photoshop than I ever used or knew when I was working as a photographer, which seems slightly peculiar. Um, so I've started doing some design work myself, which I'm really enjoying. Uh, take us through sort of start to finish then. Let's start with your, you know, the germination of an idea. How do you how do you start with an idea for uh, a Charlie Fox book? Is it because you know your character, you have a series character, so you know it's going to be about her. So what's the spark that makes you think, oh, OK, this is going to be the next Charlie story? Um, the, the more simple the idea is in a lot of ways, the stronger it feels. The first thing I always try and do is write the jacket copy. You know the 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 paragraph and a half that you'd find on the back cover of the, the the book, because if that that should be the essential sort of you know heart of the the story, and if it can't be simply expressed in that shorter space, it's probably not the right story. So I always try and do that, um, and I find it very interesting if you ask people to to give you, in effect, the elevator pitch for their book. A lot of people can't do it. They can't really give you either the theme or the, um, you know, the basis of the idea. And I, I always want to know what the, the, the little nugget at the centre of the, the story is all about. So that's what I do first. And then I try and work that up into a, you know, a full outline. That's, uh, I do a similar thing, actually, yeah. I don't quite write a full paragraph and a half blurb but i will write a few lines that very quickly as you say sum up the kind of the heart of the story you know this happens then this happens because of this and can the hero succeed when the villain's trying to do this um and yeah i find as you say that it helps really it helps you focus especially when you get uh, into the middle of the draft you know and you get that the the uh the long trudge of the middle of the book um it can be really valuable to look back at that and go, oh yes, no, that's that's actually what this book is about. I remember now. Yes. And it was it was very interesting trying to come up with very short um praises of the books. Um I mean I uh, at one point the idea was that you know you would put in the the full jacket copy at the at the back of the book of more or less all the other books. And I've now tried to condense that down to two or three lines that tell you what each book's mm. about. So how, you said from there you go to outline. Do you outline fully? I try to outline the main structure of the book, you know, the the actual framework that the um, the characters have to cope with and, and respond to. Because what I don't try and do is the reactions of the characters when they reach those points in the story. Because quite often, if you if you set somebody down and set them off running, and they don't react as you either want or expect them to, it's very annoying. <laughs> um, you know, they, we we are not in control of our characters a lot of the time. They are they are in control of us. We build the world and put them down, and then they do their own thing. Um, and I've found the parts when I get stuck in a book is when I'm trying to push the character down the wrong route. And they don't want to go, and they fight you every step of the way. Um, so they, I, you soon know if you if you're trying to head off in the wrong direction or make a character do something that they just is not right for them, they they just won't do it. So that's really interesting because obviously thrillers are you know mostly even those of us who have nice, good you know well developed strong characters. Nevertheless, thrillers are by definition more about plot than you know they are plot focused uh but if you are if you if you have that then the plot will hinge on those characters reactions 
to various situations. So if you're not incorporating that into your outline, I imagine it must be fairly sort of loose and flexible. It's reasonably loose and flexible. I often describe it, it's like driving along a country road at night and you can see very clearly what's immediately in front of your headlights. And after that, things get a lot more hazy and you never know what's going to jump out of the of the, of the grass verge at you um, and you just have to react to it. So you know where you're going, you know, you know, there's a junction coming up or there's this, that and the other, but you don't know if there's going to be something in the road that you're going to have to, you know, swerve around. And those are the the things that can make a book really take off and be really interesting because they're the things you didn't see coming. So, and I'm always ready if if something does pop up like that, uh, if it feels right, then I'm, you know, I'm not going to say, no, it wasn't in my outline. I am not going to do that. You have to just go for it and, uh, and, and hope that it works. Uh, but I think one of the, the things, I mean, I've now done 13 books with this character. I've also got a, a prequel, um, which I've been fiddling around with for quite some time about Charlie's life back in the army. Um, And I have changed this character. She is a constantly evolving character, as people are. And you have to make a decision when you write a series. Am I going to keep the main character absolutely static and unchanging? Which is an advantage in some ways, because it doesn't matter what order people read the books in. The character is never going to be different at the start of the second book to the way they were at the start of, you know, or the 14th book, they're going to be exactly the same. Uh, And that's, as I said, that can be a real advantage. But from a, a, a writing, a creative point of view, I want to see the effect that the various events of the books have on this character and how it changes her. And I've tried to keep her very human. Um, because it is one of the dangers when you write a, and I hate the fact I have to keep calling her a strong female character, because you don't say, I write a strong male character. Well, you know, to me, she's normal, or my, well, not quite normal, but normal-ish. <laughs> um, so she just, she doesn't take any, um, you know, any... Um, Nonsense. Nonsense. That's a very good, yes. I was trying to think of a, of a, of suitably. A clean um, way of saying it, yes. A clean way of saying it. She doesn't stand fools gladly. Um, but nevertheless, she is, uh, still looks at, has a female perspective. Uh, and that's been quite difficult. Somebody said, you know, you don't want to create a character that's just a guy in nylons. And I've tried very hard to do that. But, you know, she is very, very capable. Um, and there's not many people can can get the better of her. And I have, you know, I learned a lot of um, self-defense and I've, I've cherry picked from all sorts of different martial arts uh, disciplines to end up with with techniques that somebody who is, you know, the smaller of two opponents could use and use successfully. So I've tried to keep what she does realistic. Um, and. Uh, yeah, as long as the character keeps changing and interesting me, then hopefully she keeps interesting the reader as well. Yeah, I always say there's two kinds of, especially in this genre, there are two kinds of book. Either your character changes uh, you know, and evolves throughout a series, or the world changes and evolves around the character who remains steadfast. Uh, you know, I think you've got to, because if you have neither, if neither of those things changes, then you do essentially have Murder, She Wrote, uh, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. But, you know, that's not what most modern writers are doing. Uh, and so, yes, I agree. You have to make that decision of like, well, is this character going to change? And if not, you know, the circumstances of the world and stuff will have to change around them. Uh, and that can come obviously with the, you know, pro- just the sheer process of time of uh, writing the books, especially with a long series like yours. So um when you so you get through the draft, well actually how how quickly does it do you get through a draft? How long does it take you to get through sort of your first, you know, draft before it goes to an editor? <laughs> Longer than it used to when I had a full-time job. <laughs> um <laughs> back to that again. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh 
I mean, actually, the the last book I wrote was longer than the Charlie Fox books, the Lake series. For some reason, I tried desperately to make the second book in the series shorter, and it came out to within a thousand words of being exactly the same <laughs> length as the first one, um, because I I I think people do read or like to read shorter books now, um, but. It is a bit of a movable feast. I used to be able to write 100,000 words in about three months. And now it probably takes me more like five or six, um, which I would really, really like to speed up with. Um, And I'm trying my best to do that. But uh, there's only so much, you know, cracking of whip and sitting staring at computer screen you can do. So, uh, yes. I would like to speed up my process, and I try and do that by I'm I make notes to myself about a scene. I'll just write the dialogue in a scene backwards and forwards, and then when I come to type up those pencil notes, you know, I'll add in the 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 other narrative around the dialogue. Oh, that's interesting. So while you're writing, while you're typing, you're also making notes longhand about additional stuff in the scene or changes you want to make. Uh, well, it's normally the other way around. I, I do pencil notes to myself first, and then when I come to type up those notes, oh, I see. Um, which which would really just give me the dialogue, um, more like a radio play in in some ways, um, because if you can get across almost everything you need to say in the dialogue, how much additional narration do you need? I'm one of these. I tend to skip read. I'm one of these people who tends to skip read. So if you give me a page and a half of describing what's on somebody's desk, I'm liable not to read it. So I try not to write it either. Right. Because, you know, you're always trying to move the story forwards all the time. Was it Elmore Leonard who did that 10 rules of writing and one of them was only write the interesting parts? (laughs) Yes. Leave out the bits other, other people skip. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Leave out the bits that readers tend to skip. That's it. Um, so, uh, wow. Okay. So, so do you get to the end of a draft with mostly just dialogue and then you go back and, and sort of fill in the rest? No, but I, I'm one of these awkward people who I can't move forwards until I've, I feel I've got the bit that I've been working on right. And I know they say you can't fix a blank page, but you can fix a, you know, a page that isn't, hundred percent. But I find it very difficult to go back and completely unstitch things out of a scene if I've changed my mind. So I would rather try and get that right to begin with. I see. So by the time I get to the end of the first draft, it's more or less, you know, in, in good shape. Right. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. There's been a few authors on the show who write like that as well. I am one of those people who writes very quickly to the end of the first draft and then goes back and re writes the entire thing all over again but everybody you've got to do what works for you this is a mantra that i repeated again and again if it works for you then you know that's your process i think there are as many different ways of writing as there are writers exactly and possibly more um (laughs) yes indeed so at this point presumably then you uh you will then send that off to the editor that you were with uh yes yes i uh my my editor then goes through it and um in fact it's it's very interesting the i've just had uh the second of the lakes books done for audio uh by um Ulverscroft or oak hill which is now part of Ulverscroft. and the guy who uh reads the audio books who did the first one and now this and also did one of my standalones is very good at at working out where the dramatic high and low points are. So I almost think I'm going to get him to test read the next one because I then get a report back from him uh, after he's narrated it for audiobook going, right, this bit really worked and that bit. <laughs> so I thought it would be a lot easier if he read the book before it gets to the finish stage and gives me this feedback rather than giving me this report after he's uh, after he's read the finished thing. Wow, that's... Okay, yeah, that's going to be a very unusual way of uh, going about things. But again, if it works for you. So how extensive are, I mean, bearing in mind, because obviously if you're self-publishing, you are effectively, the the editor is 
you're the editor's client rather than the other way around, which, you know, the, the relationship in traditional publishing is more hierarchical where the editor is, you know, yes, they're helping you get your book to a, a better state, but nevertheless, they are working for the publisher who are, you know, deigning to publish your book. Whereas you are hiring an editor, they're your employee effectively. So how does that, I mean, or does it affect the relationship in terms of them giving notes and sort of, you know, tr- making edits to your story? No, if something doesn't work or they don't understand what I'm trying to get across, then clearly I have not succeeded in, in you know, in, in imparting whatever it is that I'm trying to uh, do in that section of the book. So I like being edited, providing it isn't uh, overdone. I did have one of my American publishers used a, a, a copy editor for uh, one of my books that had come from, I think she'd come from an academic non-fiction background and therefore tried to correct, well, tried to Americanize all the uh, narrative, which is in the Charlie Fox books is a first person narrative. So she would not think in American. Um, I had to explain that the Brits do not use the word gotten unless it has <laughs> ill in front of it or gains after it. Um, and tried to correct the speech patterns of all the characters. So, you know, you've got a, 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 an ex-squaddy from a council estate in the north of England saying, to whom are you referring? No, I'm sorry, he's just not <laughs> going to say that. And I ended up, this was back in the days when you got a printed out paper typescript with all the corrections on it. And if you disagreed with them, you had to put three dots under the, the item and write stet in the margin. And um, I think I eventually I started counting because I was getting so enraged by this. And I wrote Stet on that manus- manuscript 1,251 times. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. So it can go too far. And also I use punctuation for its original purpose, which is to tell you where to pause. So it may not be the absolute according to the rules of grammar, the correct positioning for punctuation. But I have a rhythm in my head when I'm writing and I want people to read it with that same rhythm. And the way you break up the sentences and the paragraphs and where you put italics for emphasis or, you know, you shorten shorten the way that you construct the, the work says everything about the way people should be reading it inside their head. It's like I'm I'm watching a movie, I'm writing down what I see on the screen, and I want people when they read the book to be watching the same movie I saw. Yeah, it is tricky, isn't it, when editing get, starts getting into your style and, as you say, your rhythms of writing. Um, I don't think I'm quite as idiosyncratic as you by the sounds of it, but I, I definitely do have, you know, my moments and I often will write fragmentary sentences. I will happily begin sentences with words like but and and for dramatic effect. And it's all done for effect. It's very deliberate. And so when you then get notes back uh, trying to correct those things, it can be a bit like, you know, this is me. <laughs> you know, this is my voice. Yes, you're trying to homogenize the voice of, of the author and you have to have a distinctive voice. Anybody who's ever read um, Ken Bruin's work, which is prose poetry to me, but his he writes Marmite books. People either think he's absolutely brilliant or they hate them, and there seems to be nothing in between. Um, but it is a very distinctive style. But wouldn't you rather have that? You know, wouldn't you rather have yes. that reaction from a strong reaction, whether it's good or bad, at least it's a reaction. Oh, definitely. Rather than people saying, well, it was all right. Yeah. That, that's, <laughs> you know, oh, that's that's oh, that's just death to 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 creative prose, isn't it? Yeah. People saying, well, it was OK. Well, that's the, I mean, commercially, that might be fine. But critically, yeah, that's you know, that's the last thing an author wants to hear. So going back to the editor, do you get, tend to get given that your manuscripts are fairly, you know, fairly done by the time they go to your editor, do you tend to get many notes back? It sounds like you're fairly pragmatic about addressing 
thing issues of things like clarity, you know, where uh, the editor might simply go, oh, I'm not entirely sure what's happening here, or I didn't quite understand this sentence. But beyond that, do you get many notes back about the story? Or is that, does that tend to have been fairly locked in by the time the drafts turned in? It does get fairly locked in. I mean, I, I do, I spend a lot of, of time um, worrying about how the story works and the logic of it, and also trying to tie in threads from early into the story back into the narrative later, so that there aren't you know strands left loose. And it's I've I've always said it's it's very difficult when you look at the sort of the story arc. You get to you you start off the book and it's all very exciting and you're throwing everything into the mix and it's you know it's all the the pace is there and then you get to the top of the story and you have to start you get you reach the top of that arc and you have to start tying things up and if you do it too fast the ending's going to fall flat and if you do it too slowly you're going to end up with this wadge of fifty pages of well how did you know it was the man with the wooden leg at the end in explanation. So that third quarter of the book is the most difficult to try and start to put things together for the reader, but not so quickly they go, oh, well, I, I don't need to read the rest of it now. And that's the bit that, I mean, I, I do agonise over making the story work as much as making the characters feel like real people who are in, you know, situations that that make you want to find out what happens to them and keeps you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, that you're right that that phase of the story when you're bringing the threads together but without giving the game away, without actually getting to the climax, setting the climax up is crucial. Again, in books where plot is, you know, an important feature, yeah, that's absolutely crucial because you want everything to feel like it's building to a head, but as you say not to blow so early that that it's a letdown. Yeah. And I've I went through, I mean, I had copies of um Christopher Vogler's uh, The Writer's Journey and um all these sort of different versions that have come out now about story structure and everything else. And the only thing I I can say that I've really gleaned from that in recent years is this business of at certain stages of the of the story you need your game-changing moment you need your moment that once this has happened there is no going back you can't just say oh well actually no I'll 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 go home now I've changed my mind your characters have to have stepped across some kind of barrier that says that's it now you're committed and and you need to have those at certain stages of the story, whereas everything else about the quests and the call to action and the I'm thinking really, we'd all end up writing very similar kind of stories. And I find if I try and follow those too slavishly, I just get myself in a complete knot. I mean, I'm always looking to try and improve the craft because to me it is a craft rather than an art, and I'm always looking for ways of how can I you know make what I do better. People say, which is your favourite book? I always say, it's the next one. Yes. <laughs> it's the one I haven't written yet. Because you always think, well, that, you know, I'm going to take what I've learnt in all these previous books and I'm going to try and make this one, you know, that much better than the one before. But I think that diligent application of craft does result in art, if you are diligent about it. And also because I mean, you said that you've read all these books, but you don't follow their, you know, their their formula, their process entirely. And that's because of an instinctive decision that you're making, that it doesn't feel right. So that in itself is, I think, you know, I think may maybe that you uh, don't give yourself enough credit for the art side of it. I understand what you're saying, because I regard myself as a craftsman as well. But I think there is, like I say, if you apply yourself enough to the craft, you will get, you know, capital A, as it were, art out at the other end. Yes, I think I I take what I do very seriously, but I don't take myself very seriously. Right. <laughs> which which I think is the only way I can uh, I can look at it. Um, I mean, I tend to take opportunities to, you know, speaking or doing workshops and things uh, as much as as stand up comedy as. Um, 
uh, as being terribly serious about uh, about you know the art of of what we do, <laughs> um, and I just want people to have difficulty putting the books down. Uh, and if if they come to me and I do, I'm, I'm, I realise I'm very fortunate. I do get emails from people saying you cost me a night's sleep, <laughs> and that's just you know that's that's cause for celebration. That, that's the best thing you can hear as an author, really, yeah. isn't it? You know, yeah. That, uh, yeah. I just I was up until four a.m. reading this. You're like, yes. <laughs> Although it, it must be a little bit like sort of you know cooking a huge banquet for somebody, and um, you put it on the table and you step back and the, and it's woof, it's gone. And they say, right, what's for dessert? And you go, hang on a minute. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. I uh, speaking of Greg, actually, I was uh, sat next to Greg at a San Diego Comic Con some years ago when somebody brought up one of his novels might have been was it heavy rain that was one of his wasn't it i think it was that one uh and this was clearly somebody who was a huge fan and she handed it over to him to sign and gleefully said i i burned through it i read it in four hours and he just stopped and looked at her and went that took me six months to write (laughs) (laughs) yeah but of course it is a huge compliment it's meant as a compliment and um i do have i mean i have a, a a mailing list obviously every every author now has a mailing list i i have a very a dedicated bunch of people who are on my advanced reader team and I send out copies of the book in sort of in proof stage more or less uh, before it's been through the the final um, proofreading process and um, say there you go what do you think and sometimes I'll send it out you know on a Thursday and by Friday I'm getting the first people back saying right i've read it wow oh my god <laughs> <laughs> that is yes that is impressive so just to go back to the revision for a second how do you revise is it entirely digital or do you do you print out and make notes well as i'm writing i keep uh, a a fairly detailed summary because I found that if by the time I finish, this will probably not quite match the outline, but it is what has happened in each in each chapter. Um, if I'm doing the you know the third person books, it will be whose viewpoint the chapters in. Because I tend to do either the Charlie Fox books of first person, or the the other books I've done are in close third, so it's almost first yeah. person, but not quite. Um, so whose viewpoint, how much time has passed, which day we're on, even just day one, two, three, you know, and I'll work out the, which when it, when it needs to be a Monday or a Tuesday afterwards. And I just the gist of any conversations that have happened. Um, and also, you know, I'll put uh, I've laid in this thread, which I must come back to later or something like that. And then I do that all the way through the book. So by the time I've finished, I've probably got 20 pages of detailed summary of the book. And when I come to make edits, particularly if there are anything, if there's anything structural that I need to alter, I can work that out on the summary where things need to be changed, because that is the the blueprint of the book. Whereas by the time you've finished, even if you work to an outline, things have things have been altered and changed and you know, inevitably in the writing, something comes up and you you go with it that doesn't quite follow or you move scenes round or, you know. Um, so I find the summary is the, the most useful thing I have for doing edits because you're working with those 20-odd pages instead of 300 pages of TypeScript. That's fascinating. So you're effectively rewriting your outline as you go. Yes. Wow. That's, I don't think I've ever come across... Uh, anybody else who does that well it makes it so easy to keep then track of where you're going with the story because you can just go back and read through your summary and say all right yes this person did that and he said this here and right okay now i need to to deal with such a thing um whereas trying to work from an outline or trying to go back and read you know part of a novel that you might have written months earlier is very difficult then to keep track of the the work and this was the easiest way i've found to um to actually keep keep a grip of it yeah wow that is yeah absolutely fascinating um all right let's start to uh, bring this to a close then so what 
I mean, you've already kind of answered this in a way. When you sit down to write, what is the part that you look forward to doing the most, the parts that you enjoy writing the most? That's a very interesting question. Um, I find it all, it is, it is hard work. You know, it's concentration and it's difficult, and, um, but it's, a, it's um, a compulsion, I think. Now, I've been writing for so long that I can't really envisage doing anything else. So I do like, um, I love writing action stuff um, and making that work because so often you read action scenes that either you've no idea what's happening or you think, hang on, how did he get from, uh, you can't see it. Um, Or they're so over-described, you can see it all happening in slow motion. Um, so getting action scenes that flow and make sense and where people can read the words that are between the lines and it, it makes sense without you actually having to spell it out for them what's there because they can, they can glean those bits. Mm. And trying something new as well, trying something that's just a little bit different when I did the Last of the Lakes books, or the second rather than the last, it's not the last one, there's at least one more coming, um, which was Bones in the River, I decided almost very early on that I would have the river, I mean, this is set in the Lake District, but it's on the eastern side of the lakes in the Eden Valley. And the River Eden flows you know, through the story as well as flowing through the area where the story is set. And I decided I wanted to have the river almost have a um, be a character in the story. And I wanted to do the voice of the river in a different style to the, the normal narrative of the characters. And I tried that. And some people have said, oh, no, I, you know, it threw me out of the story. And other people have said, wow. <laughs> so it, it was a little Marmite section, I think, within the within the book. But trying things like that, I, I did a short story for one of the MWA, the, the uh, Mystery Writers of America anthologies, that was done in second and third person present tense. And that was fascinating to make that work. Well, you've got to try new things, haven't you? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's just, yeah, flexing those writing muscles every now and again. So by contrast, then, what parts do you dread? coming to write like when you sit down you think oh no today I've got to do this um I don't enjoy doing the outlines I spend so much time and I you know expend so much mental energy and and blood sweat and tears trying to get the story to you know to have its shape um and to work that um sometimes you know it's just like banging your head against a brick wall uh, but when it does work, you know, I mean, you just know when something feels right. Uh, and when it doesn't, it's it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, I mean, given that, have you never considered uh, trying to write something without an outline at all? You know, just have a concept and then start at the beginning and, and go and see where it takes you? Well, I've I've tried, you know, with an incomplete outline and I find I just write myself into a corner. And then I can't get out of it again. So I've, I, it does tend to be for me that it's easier if I if I have that framework before I start. Sure, I, I'm I'm exactly the same. But uh, you know, the, I know there are authors uh, who, yeah, just have a basic concept and then they start at the start, off they go, and somehow they get to the end, and uh, it looks like both torture and sorcery to me. <laughs> yes yes i'm i'm sure there's i'm sure there's dark magic going on there so what is the last book that you read where the writing really impressed you uh and why um i've just read a book by i think it was alan lee uh called the last teacher um and it was i'm just uh i'm just double checking that now. Uh, yes, it was uh, Alan Lee, the last teacher, and very much in the style of the late Robert B. Parker. I loved Robert B. Parker's stuff. It was so spare his prose style 
that he his work books were only about sixty five thousand words because he could say as much in that length as most of us manage in a hundred thousand. Um, and it was just very very nicely done, nice characterization, um, good story, and very sort of wittily told. So, and I've just just finished that one yesterday, I think. So, oh, fantastic. All right, Zoe, where can people find you online? I am at uh, zoesharp.com. Uh, I also blog regularly on the group site Murder is Everywhere. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, although I'm trying to to cut that back a little bit because I do have rather a lot of books to write over the next <laughs> uh, the next 18 months. Uh, sorry, so what is the what is your Twitter handle? Uh author Zoe Sharp. Right. And uh, I think I'm on Facebook as uh, Zoe Sharp author. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So what work of yours would you recommend listeners check out if they haven't read anything of yours? Well, there's the the first uh, two of the Lakes books, which are Dancing on the Grave and Bones in the River. Um, There are the Charlie Fox books, which uh, if you want to know where her story originally started, then start at the beginning with either... Killer Instinct, or I've done a, an, an e-box set of the first three books. Uh, but if you want to start her story, jump straight in with her as a bodyguard, I would start with First Drop, which is book four. All right, Zoe, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you all out there for listening to Writing and Breathing, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters who help keep the show going. If you want to join them and become a patron to get exclusive access to episodes before they're published, take part in Q&A episodes and more, go to patreon.com slash writingandbreathing and make your pledge. If you want to get in touch, go to writingandbreathing.com for links to email and Twitter, and that is also where you will find all of the previous episodes. Writing and Breathing is a 7RQ production and is made in England. Remember to write, remember to breathe. I'll see you next time.